You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Chronicles 33, let's begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Looking at the life of Manasseh, it says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam. He made groves and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed to your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. We are introduced here to Manasseh. Uh, Fifty-five years was his reign. It is the longest and the most wicked reign of the kings of Judah. We are introduced to him here at 12 years old. We see him moving into being king and immediately diving into sin. Not only did he sin, he propagated sin. He spread sin. He seduced others to enter into the same sin, and he led them into such sin as wasn't even done, if you look again at verse 9, by the people whom God had cast out before they got there. Uh, he filled not only the land, but specifically even, notice all the mentions of the temple with idols. Uh, going so far as to even him himself carving an image and sticking it, most people believe, into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was supposed to be. And worshiping there, he, he followed and worshiped gods where he had to sacrifice his own children. Um, he gave himself to all types of spiritual worship in use of familiar spirits and wizards and witchcraft and we see astrology and all these things, giving himself to that, just surrendering himself to it. Uh, and this is a man who, at 12 years old, up to the age of 12 years old, had a wonderful family. Hezekiah was a godly king, one of the most godly kings that Judah had. His mother, godly woman. And specifically, not only were they godly, Hezekiah had the unique privilege, or maybe not a privilege, but the unique opportunity of knowing when he would die. Uh, God had said, you have 15 years 
So he knew. Imagine now, parents, imagine what type of discipler you would be if you know you have 12 years with your kid and they're going to be king. And you have 12 years to invest and then you are stepping into eternity. Um, I would guess that Hezekiah was very diligent in the raising of Manasseh, that he was very thoughtful in the things that he invested into his life, that he made God the focus. And yet, we see Manasseh, when he steps into his reign, immediately delving into sin. Um, That's sadly because we know that grace and the love of God and devotion are not hereditary traits. Um, They aren't passed down just by genes. They are godly. And sin is first and foremost personal. Uh, It isn't environmental or circumstantial. It can be. But here was a boy who was raised up in an environment where sin was taken out of the way as best it could, in circumstances where sin was taken out of the way as best it could, but Hezekiah could not take the sin out of the heart of his son. The Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. Sin is our nature. We're conceived, David said, in iniquity. It is in us. It is first and foremost personal. It's not in Hollywood. It's not in the neighborhood. It's not just on TV. It's personal. That's why God takes some people in the scriptures and throws them in the light who have all the circumstances that should lead them to holiness and they dive the other way. And he takes other people like a Joseph or a Daniel or a Noah, literally, who the whole world was wicked and causes them to stand up when every circumstance and environment that they lived in was full of sin. And here, this boy, Manasseh, makes the choice to give himself to sin, makes the choice to live basically from about 12 to 39, 27 years in sin. And the type of sin, the likes of which the nation had not yet seen or ever been involved in. Now, look at verse 10. God does not leave Manasseh to himself. It says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. God, in the midst of this, does not leave Manasseh alone. He doesn't just ignore him in his sin. He sends him great warnings. But I will read this to you in 2 Kings chapter 21. Verse 16, here is Manasseh's response to those warnings. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin, where he made Judah to sin and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh murders the prophets, the people, any of those who would stand up and embody any form of conviction murders them. It says he fills Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other. Uh, One of the things it does is it actually speaks to us of Hezekiah's influence. I'll read this to you just a little bit earlier in 2 Chronicles 32. Hezekiah, when the people were surrounded by the Assyrians, says, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him, for with him is an arm of flesh, 
but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That some of the people here, even in this reign, rested themselves, and the influence of Hezekiah was still so strong that they were willing to say no to the point where even if you will kill us, we will not bow to the things that you are introducing, Manasseh. We will not bend our hearts and our lives to the way that you are directing us, even if you say that you will take our life. Uh, And I say that because what that tells us is Manasseh had to harden himself to continue in his sin. He had to actively work to ignore what God was pointing out to him. Um, And we... Because this may be a revelation to you, I know, at some point in our lives, we'll all be wrong. It is some point, maybe some more than others, but hey, it's going to happen to all of us. Therefore, it is very important that God is gracious enough to bring warnings into our hearts and into our lives. Now, when he does that, what do we do with those warnings? What do we do with our conscience? What do we do with the hunger of our hearts for meaning, for purpose, for satisfaction? What do we do when the word of God touches our hearts and our lives? Do we look at ourselves in that mirror and then walk away as one who forgets? What do we do when God sends a person into our life and they say something like, I don't think this is right. You need to think about this. What do we do? when God sends his warning prophet of ten thousands of mercies that we don't deserve and daily loads us with benefits? What do we do with the warnings that God gives to us in his grace and in his love and brings into our hearts and lives? Do you even have a person in your life that if they said to you, you're wrong, you could actually listen to it? Think about it. Manasseh actively worked to rid himself of any place of conviction, of anybody that would say he was wrong. He dodged any area where God might speak to him and put to death any warning that he didn't want to hear about himself and his own sin. Now, look at verse 11. Wherefore, um, this is because of all of that, The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, bound bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. Because of that insistence, because of that stubbornness, um, because of Manasseh's hardening of actions and hardening of heart, God then sends adversity. He brings the Assyrians, and they conquer them. They defeat them. He brings them, and it says, among the thorns and fetters, literally, they would take a hook and put it through your mouth and drag you uh, to wherever, to uh, Manasseh. It was Babylon, and he was thrown in a dungeon here in Babylon. God introduces this adversity because of Manasseh's unwillingness to listen. And God still does this today, not because of every sin, It is not his first action. Remember, this is 27 years into it. But he does use this as a tool. Adversity does not work with everyone. 
It is not a guaranteed work where even God can sometimes bring adversity into people's lives and some people harden themselves still further. But for Manasseh, we see, if you look in verse 12, when he was in affliction, when God brings this affliction into his life, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself. For Manasseh, this affliction worked. Manasseh would not listen to God. Manasseh would not bend. Manasseh would continue in his sin until God, in his mercy, brings pain and affliction into his life. We have some false assumptions, and many people do, about God and the way that he acts. I'm sure you've heard people say such things as, well, if God is real, why would he let this happen in my life or that happen in, in my life? And the assumption is that if God is real, then obviously he wants me to be happy. But that's an assumption. And it's also an assumption that your happiness is your general health and what you want. You see, God doesn't just want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. And God also knows that our greatest happiness is found in relationship with him, and our ultimate happiness is found in eternity. And it is more cruel for him to let someone walk through this life in the trappings of the palace and to enter into hell for eternity than it is to bring affliction into their life and cause knees that had never been in a palace to finally find their place on a dungeon floor. And he did it because he loved him. Because he loved him. And here, Manasseh now bends, and we see, as he goes on in verse 12, he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him, and he was entreated of him, he heard his supplication, and he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Repentance becomes the fruit of the adversity and the affliction and the pain in Manasseh's life. That is a good fruit. Paul would say to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, I'll read this to you, chapter 7. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing, for godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. Paul understood that there was a sorrow in people's life that was good, that brought forth fruit repentance unto salvation. I think sometimes, even when we speak with people or with ourselves and we think about the Lord and we think about sin and the sorrow that steps in, we want to hurry people through things. Okay, you've repented, you're forgiven. Okay, now you can move forward and you don't have to think about it. God doesn't hold it against you, which things are true. But I think if the Holy Spirit is doing a work in someone's life, it's good that he does that work. And if we sorrow over things that grieve the heart of God, then it is good that we sorrow over things that grieve the heart of God. And Paul understood it is good for you. You're sorrowing. Yes, you Corinthians. But it's good because that sorrow is going to bring you to a real repentance. The depth of the work is going to be genuine. It is going to be real. It is going to bring forth a renewal of relationship. That's what repentance does. It opens up a, a way for us to enter into a relationship with God that was before blocked, 
or had obstacles of sin that weren't repented of. Um, repentance in 1 John 1, 9, it tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. That confession is to say the same thing. It means to say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. You understand? That's, that's different than just saying something, right? Because we like to downplay our sin. If I have pride or gossip, you know, that's a, that's a character fault. It's not really a sin, you know? Oh, if I'm, if I'm selfish, I'm just, I'm just lazy. It's just the way that I am. Or if I have a temper, you know, that's my cross to bear. No, it's your spouse's cross to bear. It's your sin, <laughs> right? We, we like to make our sin not quite what it is. It's not so bad. Now, interesting question. Do you want to see your sin and feel about your sin as God feels about it and as God sees it? Do you want that? You want to say the same thing about your sin that God does. Do you want to repent, not just so that sin can be dealt with, but so that you can be in a new relationship with the Lord so that those things can be removed and now the way is open for you to know and to experience him because now you see what happened with Manasseh. It says at the end of 13, then he knew that the Lord, that Yahweh was the only God. He knew distinctly the God that I heard about that whole time. Now I know he really is who he says he is. You see, a relationship started. The prodigal son, what did he know about his father when he was dissatisfied in his father's house? What did he know about his father when he asked his father for the inheritance? What did he know about his father when he left? He took off. What did he know about his father when he wasted his father's wealth in a foreign land? What did he know about his father when he slopped with the pigs? What did he know about his father when he came to his senses and trudged back home thinking, I'm just going to ask to be a servant? He didn't actually know much about his father. But what did he know about his father when he saw him a great way off and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him and embraced him with compassion? What did he know about his father when his father said, Bring the best robe and ring and shoes and put it back on him. What did he know about his father when his father said, I command that a feast, a festival be given. And what did he know about his father when his father called him a son again? You see, repentance made a new way of relationship. He didn't really know his father until he repented. Yeah, he knew who his father was and he knew things about his father. But he didn't really have a real relationship. He didn't know him in the same way until he repented, until those things were moved out of the way. Manasseh was the same. Then he knew that the Lord, he was God. And we see, look in verses 14 through 16 now, that repentance is genuine in the fact that it bears fruit. After this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even into the entering in at the fish gate, compass about Ophel, and raised it up to a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of all the house out of the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and cast them out of the city. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now we see him here. Notice his repentance has fruit. As John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, hey, bring forth fruits meat for repentance. His repentance is real. He goes back and we see he immediately has positive and negative repentance to and from following and fleeing. He takes those things that should not be there and moves them out. He takes the idols and moves them out. He walks into the Holy of Holies and takes the idol he had made and moved it out. But he doesn't stop there. He then takes what's right and moves it back in. He then takes the responsibilities that should have been his all along and begins to follow them, building up the defenses of the nation, securing from the things that could harm them. He then moves forward in his relationship with the Lord, repairs God's altar, offers, notice, peace offerings, thank offerings. He doesn't just do the negative things and move them out of the way. He then takes that spot that should be given to God and gives God his rightful place in it. And it's a dangerous thing for us to just take negative things and move them out of the way, things that we know are sinful, and not then to take the things that should take their place and put them back where they should be and to leave an empty void in our life, which is sure to be filled with that sin again. It's like entering into a battle and just carrying your shield. All you're going to do is try to survive. You bring a sword or a spear with you so that you can actually fight back and you can win. Some of us live our Christian lives like that. We just run around trying to survive the sin instead of actually picking up what we should be doing and moving forward. Real repentance has a positive action to it as well. He moves forward in the things that God would have him to move forward in, in his life. He's entering into the things that God would have him. And that brings a sweet sense of love and worship to the Lord. He understood now the blessings that he had, which makes him appreciate what he has even more. Who appreciated as the Israelites march into the land of Canaan, more the blessings of that land. The children who had never seen Egypt or Joshua and Caleb who had been there at the Passover and saw all the miracles and saw the blood cover them and their families and then were there the first time when the nation rejected to go in and watched all those that were their age drop dead in the wilderness until finally they entered into the land of Canaan. Who do you think appreciated it more? It was Joshua and Caleb. They understood what it cost for them to be there in a way that the others didn't. And here, Manasseh, truly repentant, understood what it was for him to be back in his kingdom. And it showed even in his heart and in his thankfulness. 17. But we have this disclaimer, nevertheless... The people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. Manasseh, even though he's back, and back for the same amount of time, 27 years, lived in rebellion, basically a year, most people believe, in prison, comes back for another 27 years before he dies and moves off the scene. And in that time, Manasseh finds out that it was much, much harder to undo his own wickedness than it was to undo his father's good influence. He realizes that sin still carries a price. 
that God doesn't just take tares and turn it into wheat. Galatians tells us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. You can murder somebody today, and you could repent genuinely, and God would forgive you. You can go to heaven. You can be in a relationship with the Lord. But it doesn't mean you're not going to jail. Right? You understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that God is going to take all the consequences of sin and remove them out of the way. Every sin seed that is sown is wrong. But every sin seed that is sown is not equally as bad, nor produces the same harvest. It is one thing to lust after a woman. It's wrong. And it's another thing to commit adultery. It's wrong. They're both wrong. As Jesus said, both will send you to hell if not repented of. But one carries much more of a harvest of pain while here on earth. Don't think that sin can be easily dealt with. If the cross tells us one thing, it tells us this. Sin is exceedingly hard to fix, even for God. And Manasseh found that, yes, he could be in relationship with the Lord. Yes, he had new joys that he had never experienced. But, but he could not change all that he had sown. He could not redeem all that his life in the past had built up in a harvest of wickedness. He still carried that. And for us, it's a warning that we need to look and say, Lord, please let me learn from this. Look at 18 and 19 then. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer unto his God, the words of the seers that spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also, and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and the high places where he built the high places, um, set up the groves and the graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. I think it's very interesting the three things that Manasseh really wanted to be known about himself. He must have shared these things, especially his prayer. First, in verse 18, notice what it says, the warning words. The words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord God. He remembered them. 67 years old, he passes off the scene right around there. And he can look back and say, here are the warnings that God gave me. He rejected them, but he remembered them. They stayed with him. They stayed with him. The second thing that he says is notice his prayer and how God was entreated of him. Uh, his repentance wants people to know his true sorrow over the things that he had done, over the work that his life had accomplished. He wants people to understand what God had done in him. And then notice all his sin and his trespass, the, hot, the places where he had built high places, the groves, the graven images before he was humbled, all these things, basically the depth of his sin. He wanted people to understand that, not because he could glory in it then, not because he could say, I was so horrible. I believe it's because he could then say, look at my example and look at God's example of grace in my life. Here is how far I was. He wasn't making it up. He wasn't embellishing the facts. He didn't need to. He could just say the honest truth and say, here is what I did. Look, if God could do this for me, 
how much more can he do it for you? He was the example of the Old Testament, the prodigal son of the Old Testament. And now, verse 20, it says, So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Uh, I contrast that with Hezekiah's death in Second Chronicles 32. It says this, Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the chiefest of the sepulchres of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Hezekiah is placed in the hall of kings, in the chiefest of places, and all the nation mourns for him at his death. Manasseh, Kings tells us, asked to be placed in his own garden. Doesn't ask to be placed in the hall of kings. Doesn't ask to be even in his death marked with David or even Hezekiah, his father. I believe in true humility. He said, don't put me there, right? Just bury me in my own garden. Again, still carrying some of those things. Forgiven, knowing where he was going in eternity, but still carrying some of them. And in his life then, um, I think there's really three main things we can take away from that. The first is this, beware of sin's influence. Avoid compromise in your life, especially if you are young. Avoid compromise in your life. When I say Samson or when I say Lot, where does your mind go? I doubt that it immediately goes for Samson to the hall of faith. I doubt when I say Lot that your mind immediately goes to the New Testament declaration that he was a righteous man. When you say Samson, you think of Delilah. You think of some strength and you think of his tragic death. When you say Lot, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of his near escape, the fate of his wife his ignominious and horrid incest at the end of his life and the pictures there. That's because these men allowed themselves to be in places of sin. They allowed the compromise to center around their life. They were not a Daniel or a Noah who had no choice as to the sin in their life. They could have done something about it, but they refused to. And because of that, the dark stains of sin still mar their lives. Are they in heaven? Yes. Yes, because of God's grace and because of God's love. But sin still has its effect. And they allow that to be there, that those that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Avoid compromise and sin in your life. The second thing I think we can learn from Manasseh was when he was bound, when he was in prison, he was 40 years old. Uh, in the New Testament, in Acts, we have that scene that so many of us know very well. John and Peter are traveling along, and they see that man. And then Peter, of course, says to him, silver and gold, the lame man, have I none, but that which I have I will give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that man gets up. Everyone is praising God. He is healed. There's a miraculous thing that's done. And it says in Acts 4, it tells us, interestingly, that that man was above 40 years old. Uh, and why would the Holy Spirit mark 
something like that for us? I think it's simply because of this. Because God wants us to know that he still does miracles after 40 years old. (laughs) And you laugh some. (laughs) But I'm not joking in this regard. Because when we talk about Manasseh, you shouldn't just think about the prodigals or those in your life that would fit his character. You should think that there was rebellion that lasted for over 40 years in his heart and life, and it took a miracle to fix. And those of us who are here over 40, we can allow ourselves to be set in ways and think this is just the way that it is. I'm not going to change. You're not, but God can. God can. And he wants to open himself up to you in new ways. We are all being conformed in the image and likeness of Christ till the day that we die and we see him and know him face to face. And God wants us to know that in long-held rebellion, in places that have lasted and not been dealt with, in things that have impaired us for even up to 40 years, he'll step in and do a miracle if we let him, if we would allow him to in his graciousness and in his love. He still does that today. And of course, I think lastly, um, what we see here from Manasseh is, do we have shameful years of sin? Do we have black stains and marks in our past? Are we riddled with things that are obviously wrong and we know that we've grieved the heart of God? Did you step in here today knowing that you are a great sinner? Well, then I say you have a great Savior. Cry to mercy for the God of Manasseh. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He puts Manasseh out there and marks down his life and his wrongs, not because he wants us to look at them and to smash him, but because he wants us to look at them and then to look to him like Manasseh did. He will not disregard the prayer of the destitute, the psalmist tells us. If the poor man cries out to him, he will answer. He will deliver. And maybe you're here and you think that you have sinned greatly. Well, you haven't sinned greatly like Manasseh. And God in his mercy stepped down into his heart and into his life and did something that Manasseh never would have dreamed. Never would have dreamed. You can know today that the Lord, he's God. He is God. You can wash that and cleanse that in your heart and in your life. You're here for a reason. If that's you, then repent. Repent today and know God. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, just for these things. Thank you for the graciousness of your word. Thank you for, Lord, your love, for who you are in your patience, in your kindness, in your grace with all of us. Lord, we're all slaves to sin. Um, And it's only you that can make the difference in our hearts and lives. We love you. We thank you for it. We praise you, Lord. Um, We offer that up to you now. 
And Father, we ask uh, that when we are faithless, Lord, that you would continue to still be faithful. Do your work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.